This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Most jobs have a specialised vocabulary. Those that do it understand. If I said you were picking up in the dark, just sneaking in, but carefully avoiding flaring, that you were dancing in the dark or just manipulating the magic, would you have any idea what job you would be doing? Ali Richards does, and her book is called A Light in the Dark. Welcome, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think you better tell us what that <laughs> job is. So that job is um, follow spotting, would probably be the correct term for it. Um, whether follow spot is one word or two, I don't. It's very contentious. There's a lot of different versions online that I had to figure out with my editor. Um, but it's also colloquially referred to as doming. And that is because in the old European opera houses, the follow spot operators used to sit in little dome shapes at the back of the auditorium. So that's how it was called doming and an operator is called a dome. I always thought it was the shape of the light that gives the spotlight. No, see, I'm always learning. Well, to be honest, there's always different stories about how terminology came about and you never really know what one's correct. That's just what someone told me once. Well, the person who's using their dome light is Iris. She's 23 now and discovered this behind the scene magic. But it was in her year seven after she won a scholarship to an elite girls' school that she was introduced to the theatre. She became best friends with who was more interested in creative writing than theatre. Let's hear a little bit from A Light in the Dark. Iris clung to Molly those first few months. It calmed her each time that Molly explained one of the rituals. That's what we always do. Molly clung to Iris too, because of the blondes. Gemma Neal and her friends had been through primary school with Molly. They were all pretty, with clear skin and small breasts, and all of them, except for Miranda Chi, were blonde. Next to them, Iris felt about as womanly as a lizard. Her body was flat and squared off at its edges. Her face and arms were almost entirely freckled. The patches of her pale complexion traced through them like waterways on a map. Her hair was no colour, darker than blonde, lighter than brown, wet sand. When the blondes passed them around campus, Gemma would comment, I'm not sure which one is uglier, the fatty or the one with ants all over her face. Year seven, oh golly, those girls can be nasty to each other. But everyone in year seven who volunteered got a role in the school musical. This is where Iris's love of theatre started. Miranda, one of the blondes, got a role and so did Nina. What was surprising about Nina getting a role? So Nina is a very enigmatic student. She's shy. She doesn't have any friends, quite purposefully it seems, even if Iris a few times attempts to befriend her, she shows no interest and she never speaks. So it was very shocking that someone with that demeanour would participate in a school musical. There was the magic of theatre, but also the magic of the drama teacher. What made him so special? Well, let's hear Ali read a little bit more from page 42. Hot was such a basic term. He was inspiring. He had more energy than all their other teachers combined and more interest in what he was teaching. He was charged with something extra and yet there was a stillness to him too. It was like he floated around campus when everyone else was dragging themselves through each day. So what skills did he bring to the girls? Well, I think 
It's interesting. I've always loved um, drama, obviously, and English. And I also, in my role as a lighting technician, I have had to learn some basics of physics and, and maths and stuff to sort of calculate wattage. And I know people who are mathematicians and physicists often say that they, they find the arts very confusing because there's no right or wrong answer. But I feel it so intensely in the other path. I, if I have to do a maths test, I have so much anxiety because there's only one correct answer. And what if you put the wrong number in your calculator? Or I find that very restrictive. And I find the arts with, with its um, interpretiveness, I find that the freeing and the more comfortable place to be. So I think what Iris really loves about learning this is that to be a good actor is almost impossible. Well, even the way he taught, you know, he was very uh, energetic, I suppose. You know, he, he got them to really uh, think and with confidence about their characters. You know, he, there were lines. Musical theatre is athletic. It should be an Olympic sport. <laughs> it really should be. I mean, I watch actors as a job all the time, honestly, and seeing sometimes between a scene in a rehearsal, they'll sort of get down on the stage and start doing sit-ups and stuff to, you know, to keep fit, and they go to the gym all the time. They're incredibly fit people. His ability to enthuse and develop their understanding of being a character was really there too. And um, Ange. Yes, yeah. That's the drama teacher's wife. And she's the stage manager on their school productions. And yeah. she is also a professional stage manager, so the students find her very alluring. Mm. Through Year 7, those involved with theatre were, uh, were able to go on an excursion, including a stay overnight in a city hotel and to see a play. A lot of these were firsts for Iris. She loved it all, which cemented her schoolgirl crush. She researched plays where younger women won over older men. And I was surprised about how many there were. Yeah, yeah. Sound of Music, of course, a wonderful example. <laughs> She'd written her own play and wanted him to read it, but overnight it went missing. And that wasn't all. It wasn't all? Well, <laughs> who else had gone? Yes. so. In this particular scene, Iris wakes up in the middle of the night. She'd been sharing a hotel room with Nina and she realises that Nina is gone. And initially her response is to be worried and think she needs to go speak to a teacher and maybe Nina's sick, maybe she's snuck out. Um, and then she realises that the play that she wrote is missing. And there's not a lot of resolution to this part in the book, but I think it's a large part of the tension of this book is Iris's unhealthy obsession with Nina mm. and so she wants to know why it is that she's taken it or if she's taken it and she it, it drives her slightly mad. Well, the school play was a success. Iris was looking forward to having a bigger part in the next school play the following year. Her jealousy of Nina grew as it was Nina who went on this overnight excursion again as mentor to the new batch of Year 7 kids. Iris had tried to befriend Nina, but with no luck. She did find out that Nina's mother died when Nina was only six years old. And so we move into part two of the book. Now, Iris is 23 and her mother has also died. How is Iris coping? Not very well. Um, I think the structure of this book is I a lot of really hard things happen to Iris in the course of the novel and I sort of wanted to explore that of what happens in life when 
not only one horrific thing happens to you, but then you get walloped with another one right at the same time. Um, even though I, I went to quite quite a bit of effort in the first half to show that Iris has had a beautiful life as a young girl. She has a really lovely family. She goes on nice family holidays. She had a friend at school and there's some nice things, but then suddenly life just whacks her with two pretty heavy blows right at the same time. How's she treating her boyfriend, Nick? Very badly. Oh. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so she's grieving for her mother and drinking hard. And then at the brother's wedding, she hears something about the drama teacher. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, she gets some news that the drama teacher has been accused of having inappropriate relationships with a student. She's never told her best friend and her boyfriend something from her past, which she still doesn't know how she feels about him, about and with him. The drama teacher never gets a name, <laughs> him. Until the second last page. Now that was that was clever. Was that your decision, or was that an editorial thing that came in? It was my decision. It is for. I actually, when I was writing this manuscript, I was using a ten-year-old laptop. Actually, it might have even been thirteen years old. It was really old, and the keyboard was starting to go, and I had to hit keys at like certain angles to get them to work. I've since upgraded my laptop. But I, when you, if it was a, so he did have a name in the original draft and because he was a teacher, he was called like Mr. and his surname and it required me to keep capsing to get the caps in and I was so fed up with it. I thought, I'm cutting that out. I'm just going to refer to him as him and that is genuinely the true story of how he became unnamed. But the sort of artistic spin I can put on that now is that she really idolises this man. She doesn't see him as a human being. She sees him as a god. And when you idolise someone, you're not seeing every part of them, you're not seeing them as a person. So the name of him at the end is sort of to show that she's come to a place where she can see him as a human being. So she has guilt over something with a drama teacher, grief over her mother, she drinks diluted vodka all day and harassing Nick. What does he finally do? He finally cuts her loose. <laughs> takes care of himself and gets out of there. He, you've got him writing a lovely text back to Iris. Maybe you should be nicer to the things you want to keep. <laughs> Very good. You know, that's a real thing that someone I know said to someone who was quite horrible to them and they broke up with them and they said, I don't know what they kind of said to try and get him back and he said, well, maybe you should be nicer to the things you want to keep. <laughs> Quoting. <laughs> so how will she help herself? She does by sharing her grief with her family. Perhaps if she found Nina again, would that help? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know whether it probably would help. I would hope to think beyond the ends page of this novel into the future, both girls are have dealt with what happened to them and they're mature enough to meet up and discuss it all. Mm. I think at the time that we see Iris in the book though, she's still so thick in the mess of this really unfair jealousy that I I think it would be too soon for her, like it could almost blow it up and make it worse if she saw Nina, if she was really unkind to her or really, she's got a lot of petty jealousies that she needs to work through I think. We started with specialised words for the doming lights in theatre. A lot of things are done in the dark that may happen with abuse as well. The blaming of the victim, the many emotions involved, 
You've written about this really well, Ali Richards. You. Was it difficult? It was incredibly difficult. It's really harrowing um, subject matter. Um, I spent quite a bit of time reading court transcripts of cases, um, which is really, you know, it's really dark stuff. And obviously when I was reading those court transcripts, they're real cases and real people. So I really wanted to make an effort to make sure that my book did not closely resemble any of them. I didn't, um, I didn't speak to any survivors of these crimes for that reason as well. I didn't want anyone to think that I was basing a story off what happened to them. But the problem with that is that these stories are all so similar and so many of the transcripts I read so often um, have people of similar ages, students that already had issues to begin with, um, extracurricular teachers tend to feature a lot, cars tend to feature a lot, so it was, I sort of did have a panic towards the end when I went back to some of those transcripts and I thought, oh my god, I've based it off this one, I've based it off this one, and I realised they're so similar. The narration was just compelling to read. Oh, thank you. So you mentioned that you've used factual bits and the La Mama Theatre Fire yes. got in and making of a dramatisation of a script from The Bachelor. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> well, so I had a play that was due to open at La Mama. We were one month out from opening when La Mama burnt down, so it was incredibly oh. heartbreaking. I had all my first kind of theatre bits and pieces on La Mama. It is... The absolute, you know, we would have no theatre industry in Melbourne without La Mama. It's Sebastian and I love it. Um, and at the time I was also, my play was on with another play written by two Melbourne theatre makers, Morgan Rose and Katrina Cornwell, and that was an episode of The Bachelor that was put on live on stage. So I asked their permission if I could use that and put it in the novel. COVID was a terrible time for people in the theatre world, but a good time for writing. Yeah, well, I had to do something because I was out of work basically for two years. <laughs> A Hot Desk Fellowship at the Wheeler Centre. Very quickly, tell us what that is. Uh, so the Hot Desk Fellowship, it's supported by the Readings Foundation. They give you a desk in the Wheeler Centre for eight weeks and they give you $1,000 to cover your transport and buy a bit of lunch. And there's, I think there's 20 of you when you do it. And so you just go in each day and work on your work and you get to meet other really amazing writers doing that. So it's wonderful. Ellie Richards has written A Light in the Dark a story of ambition, envy and disappointment. The title can refer to the theatre world or hopefully the way forward from secrets and grief. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lovely chat. And here is my interview with the poet Eva Collins about her migrant experience. The migrant experience has been encapsulated in verse in Eva Collins' collection, Ask no questions. So, Eva, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. You have a poem for us. Would you care to read out St Kilda 2 for us, please? Okay. On Sundays, my parents meet their Polish friends on St Kilda Beach. Dad shakes hands with Franek, Marek and Janek, starts a conversation on business and politics. Mum kisses Bella, Fella and Hella. Out comes the coconut butter for that golden Hawaiian tan. Men with their chests puffed out swoop on women who need a light. Women squeezed into swimsuits parade like seals along the pier. Avoid men's eyes diving into their cleavages. 
they dip their toes in the water, then swim breaststroke, not to smudge their mascara. There were rubber caps with quivering flowers, each thinking that the next Esther Williams. Only Fellini is missing. A rather amusing sort of encapsulation, <coughs> but this... Uh, collection is actually far more serious. There's moments of humour, but it's a very personal story about your own family's experience. Yes, definitely. And coming out from Poland. So what brought them out from Poland? Well, my parents were political migrants. Um, My father especially was very frustrated with the communist regime in Poland with the level of control, the level of surveillance, the level of interference, and he didn't see it getting any better, and he just wanted to get out and live in what he called a normal country. But he was also Jewish? Yes. And so that would have created There was a level of anti-Semitism in Poland, naturally, which I think most Jewish people felt, I didn't know he was Jewish. I didn't know what Jews are, except I've heard that word, and it sounded very mysterious. I thought they were like, you know, science fiction characters. Until we leave Poland, and I'm besides myself crying, because it's such a rapture for me. I mean, my whole goal was to sit on Stalin's knee and be given a lolly. I mean, I was heartbroken when he died. But my father explained to me the evils of communism, and then he said, also, I want to protect you from anti-Semitism. And that is such a long, unusual word. I didn't know what it meant. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's prejudice against the Jews, and I'm Jewish. I was amazed what came out of my mouth when he said that. I said, Dad... You killed Jesus Christ. And my father looked at me and he said, Child, I haven't even met the man. That's in one of the poems and it's it's an amusing sort of retort. But the opening poem called Form highlights the bureaucracy taking away family identity. Surname, Collins, double L, with a stroke of a pen. I grow from Kowalski to conformity. So this is the experience of a lot of migrants losing their very names in many ways. It was this plus the subterfuge, how you can't judge a person by their name, like you can't judge the book by the cover. It was not only a loss, but it was also how you never know people what's under the surface. And your family leave Poland in 1958, and this poses a lot of ongoing challenges for you because at one time you actually do go back. Dad says, you'll come back when you're older. Me, I'll be someone else then. Can you ever go back? No. What does it mean to go back? I'm glad you picked it up. I already at that very young age... I knew it will never be the same. I felt ruptured. I felt, you know, that there was a split in my reality. It wasn't something what I wanted. I actually felt violated leaving Poland at the age of 12. I did go back, 
including this year. I've been back 14 times, and each time it feels like I'm taking back what's mine. You know, I go out to breathe the city, to breathe the country in, regardless who is in the government, what I have such a soft spot for is the color of the light, the patterns, the smells, the sounds, the quirkiness. Each nation has its particular quirky traits, and I value it very much. But how much is that part of you, given that you spent a lot of your time growing up in Australia? A friend of mine said, Eva, you've never left Poland. And... That was quite apt. I am very much part of Australia, but not to the exclusion of still being Polish. And this is actually what it is to be Australian in many ways. For a lot of people that have come from overseas, trying to reconcile two identities, two senses of place. So how much does place shape your identity? Totally, I think. When you are born in a certain place and you grow up there for a certain time, I think it's the first impressions of the world which give you an understanding of what is reality. Your first language is what you think as a child, the only genuine representation of what there is. So when I came to Australia, things were not quite right. The Christmas should not be spent on the beach. It was fake. And um, I used the language initially as a communication tool to talk to people to get by, but it wasn't a language which I savoured and enjoyed until I started writing poetry. And you do play with language in these poems. There's a lovely moment where your mother has given... Uh, a homegrown tomato to a neighbour, and the neighbour says, good on you, love. Well, the way he said Anya, I thought he said onion. Ah. And we thought, why is he calling a tomato an onion? onion? He must have been drinking. And I often say to people now, good onion, and they don't flick. You know, they think I'm saying good onion. And that was one of the things that threw me. What threw me much more in the language was when a school friend, she offered to share her lunch with me, and she said her mother prepared some lovely hot dogs, and I nearly passed away, you know. I got such a shock. What country is it that eats hot dogs, for goodness sake? But then also there's an impact from this move on your mother especially. Sometimes mum looks at photographs and weeps. Yes. It could be very challenging for the adults especially. My father was so grateful for being in a country where he felt no fear, where there was such low corruption compared to Poland at the time, that he really cherished being here And whatever sentiment he had to Poland was very much under control. My mother was an artistic person. She was an actress in a theater. Polish was her tool of trade. And she missed the theater. She missed the whole atmosphere of Bohemia. And she felt very marginalized, even though she performed here for the Polish group and she was on Australian TV in police series, but it wasn't the same. And 
she missed Europe. She missed how far we were. It, it, it was the lifestyle. So you gain in political freedom in her case, but she, she lost in the vibrancy of life that she led. I mean, again, coming back to that return visit to Poland, you've uh, highlighted the dichotomy. <clears throat> My parents left Poland because of the bad, despite the good. I've come back for the good, despite the bad. And the the way you've put the words here on the page, it captures that ambivalence, that dichotomy, that division that you feel. Yes. In the words. So... Can that ever be reconciled in terms of how you uh, look at Australia? Either, I would imagine, by total assimilation of very large degree of assimilation, of being able to manage the sentiment and nostalgia of their background and be very actively involved in life here. In my case, when I'm in Poland, I'm Polish. When I'm here, I'm me. But you pick up on this in the last poem, if, and pointing out what has changed, what has happened, that there is never any real going back. Uh, one of the verses, my Greek husband would have lived too far away for us to meet. Yes. There's new opportunity. I guess it depends on the way you look at it because it's opened up new vistas, new horizons. But at the same time, that wouldn't have occurred had you stayed where you were. Exactly. So how do you... So what I mean, there's so much randomness in our life. It's so arbitrary where we finish up, who we meet. And I often used, I don't know, but I used to wonder how different would my life have been had I stayed in Poland? Who would I have married? How different would it have been if my husband's parents never left Greece? and we never met, how easily we could have lived in a different place. And as you mentioned earlier, the place always has a huge effect on our psychology. That doesn't mean it's set in stone, but it does affect you consciously or unconsciously. And it's also that notion of opportunity. And as I said before, in many ways, it's what Australia is, where people have crafted a new life for themselves. And the fact that you're able to put it in verse gives an expression to that and acquaints a lot of Australians with that experience that many uh, of the people that now reside in Australia have been through. So the collection is called Ask No Questions. The author uh, and poet is Eva Collins, and it's a Puncher and Watman release. So, Ava, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.